I can hear you, and this is the clearest I've heard you for the whole time. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> oh, Fiona, let's <laughs> let's get this show on the road, <laughs> hey? <laughs> Hi, I'm Katrina Blowers and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence, conversations where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to live your most confident life. I'm a journalist and TV newsreader and of all the people I've interviewed over the years, confidence isn't something any one of them was born with. So what separates those who refuse to let that self-doubt hold them back? Let's find out. What is your relationship like with alcohol? Do you sometimes have a drink to get more confidence or get the Dutch courage to socialise? Today, it is my great delight to bring you one of Australia's best comedians. It's Fiona O'Loughlin! I admire her so, so much, not only because she is insanely funny but so beautifully honest about the toxic trap of her battle with alcohol addiction. That was this dark, dark shadow in my mind and I carried it everywhere. In her book, Truths from an Unreliable Witness, such a great title, Fiona shares just how bad it really got. Passing out on stage, drinking herself into a coma, chugging down hand sanitizer while on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and living in a drug den with a kooky healer. We've got to be really open, really honest about what alcohol is. In this episode, Fiona shares how she got the confidence to finally go public with all of it and advice for anyone else who wants to change their own relationship with drinking. So here is the incredible Fiona O'Loughlin on claiming her confidence. First of all, we, we, I was just congratulating you on your amazing book and how much it personally moved me. And where did you get the idea from to write it? Was it was it a tough thing to do or was it something that you felt that you needed to get out into the world? I actually started writing this book when I was at home with my parents in that time that I write about, um, penniless, living at home uh, at my parents' house, yeah. <laughs> my sister came to visit, Emily, and... I also write about this how she seemed I seemed like I was in a sub world to everyone else in my family and people would come visit mum and dad but they were in their real live worlds you know and I didn't really have a world anymore and I remember her standing by the bed and it was that childhood bedroom and I was in the bed where I was most of the time in a fetal position and Emily my baby sister she looked down at me and she said you're going to write your way out of this and I remember asking mum could I borrow her laptop and I wrote enough of this book to get an advance and get cracking on it but then after it took, I actually then went on to go into rehab and it, you know, I never continued with that publisher but at least I had the beginnings of the book. So that's where the idea came from, yeah. There's a line in the book that just kind of hit me in in the in the chest it, it said the line between overdoing it at friday night drinks and drinking vodka at breakfast is scarily thin how thin is it and when did you first when did you first realize i guess that you had an issue with drinking 
it's kind of like you're the first to know and you're the last to know in a way. It, it's like this deep secret, but you don't even really want to look at it or name it. You just know it. Um, and then you try to outrun it, but it gets bigger. <laughs> and eventually everybody knows. Um, the drinking vodka in the morning is so scarily thin, that line. And I remember, I don't know, I don't think it would have been the first time I'd drunk in the morning, but I do remember being at the Adelaide Fringe and having to perform um, in the morning somewhere at a live radio cross or something. And, God, I went down Hindley Street to get vodka before I did it, and it must have been 7 o'clock in the morning. And I remember just being down an alleyway sculling this vodka and I didn't realise there was a business owner looking out of his shop at me and I this was before anyone knew, even me, that I had a problem. But whoever was looking at me out that shop window, he certainly knew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, we're laughing at that. And it's, <laughs> it's just your beautiful way of telling it. You, you make it funny, which is why I love this book so much. But anyway, you continue your story. Well, as I said, I don't know who he is or I just have that memory and that terrible shame. It was a weird thing because it was a human being I didn't know and yet he knew and it must have looked pretty strange and pathetic. But when it comes to, yeah, seeing the funny in things, it's weird. It's kind of the only way I know. Um yeah, I can't really even explain it. We should go back uh, to you as a kid and growing up in that household of one of seven children uh, and, and you talk about the moment you realised that you were probably, that, that storytelling was probably a skill that you had when you were gathered around the table as a family and you listened to members of your family tell a story and you think if only they just told it this way or if only they'd saved that nugget of information exactly. until the end describe that for us well, I was about 10 and our auntie Pat I remember we dad used to call her lazy Pat because she was so not lazy um anyway she was telling this story and it ended up being that there was a kitten caught in the engine of her car and it terrible smell coming out of the shed. Anyway, I thought, well, she just told that story better. It would have had a much bigger laugh at the end. You know, she gave away the bit about the fur being under the bonnet too soon. This is how my head used to work. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a wonderful thing to, uh, you know, I was very, very uh, young when I knew who was funny. You know, mum's best friend was very, very funny. Um, I remember her and mum having a wine on Friday afternoon and, Margaret looked over at her youngest kid and her youngest kid was just looking particularly slack-mouthed watching cartoons, as kids do at the end of the day. Uh, anyway, Mum, Margaret nudged my mother and she said, check that out, Beardry, that's old sperm and old eggs if I've ever seen it. <laughs> <laughs> what a classic. And I had a very funny grandmother, not a show-off at all, but she... She had quite a wit. She used to have sayings. They're very short, <laughs> direct sayings. She used to say, no news is no news. <laughs> I love that. 
and, and really weird ones like see eggshells, suspect eggs. So good. Yeah. So that was, um, yeah, I guess like any kids drawn to something that's naturally their skill set, I was very drawn to storytelling. Now, it wasn't something that I guess you did professionally until a bit later in life. You you met your husband quite young and then you moved to Alice Springs and you eventually ended up having five children and you also fostered a whole bunch of children too. It's just extraordinary. And you describe your house as the land of do as you please <laughs> and you just had this beautiful, playful energy of bringing up children. It sounds like like it was such a fun environment. I think it was. Um, <laughs> I remember being very happy in those times and I remember a lot of happiness around the house. It was wonderful. I started fostering out of a sense of um, guilt, really. Guilt, you know that first world guilt that we have and you see horror stories on the telly and I was always guilty. I was always feeling guilty and at the time I was Catholic supposedly, and I couldn't pray, I couldn't, you know, nothing was, I was never good at anything, at being good, basically. So I thought, well, I'll let my hands do the prayers, you know, my physicality. Um, and I had babies anyway, and so it was a very joyful house, and I hope it made a difference, you know. I don't know how many of those little kids, what happened? Sad to think about it. It's a terrible system. I mean, it's the only system we've got, but, the, God, we need more foster parents. Mm, oh, I couldn't agree more. And if anyone is thinking about it, I've, I've got to tell you, it is the most spiritually peaceful thing you can do for yourself. It wasn't until some time after that that you started dabbling. I guess you you always had that calling to entertainment and uh, and creativity. Um, it started off as what was it theatre in Alice Springs? Is that how you first got your your sense that you could do more with this gift of yours? Yes, it was accidental in many ways. I performed in a play that actually celebrated the opening of the Araluen Centre, which is our theatre, was our theatre in Alice Springs. Back then in the 80s, you know, we were so lucky with the money that was around back then and to get this beautiful theatre in Alice Springs, it's 500-seater, and we opened it. It was opened by a local production of Godspell and I got a part. You had to audition and everything. It was so exciting. And um, that was the beginning, uh, but then it the group of people that I met through rehearsal and production of that show, uh, we all hung out together quite often and we'd put on what we used to call them cabarets. I don't know why. Um, but basically they were in the bistro area of the Aradorn Arts Centre and we'd put them on every two weeks, sometimes once a month, um, and I was the MC. So it's just a lineup of... It was a lineup of poets, dancers, jugglers, guitarists, musicians, everything, and I was the MC. And then someone said to me, it was the arts minister at the time, he said, you're actually doing stand-up and you should check out more about it, you know, apply to my office for an arts grant. <laughs> I didn't even know what a stand-up was. I, I mean, I did, but I'd never seen stand-up, you know, Um my only point of reference to stand-up really was what I'd seen on the ABC. Um, I'm, I know I used to love watching Billy Conley. Anyway, so I applied for an arts grant, $600. I didn't want to be greedy. And so I caught a bus to Melbourne. 
Left Chris and three kids. Everyone thought I'd gone mad, but hell, as soon as I walked into a, uh, it was the Star and Garter in South Melbourne, and Bob Franklin was um, the first stand-up comedian I ever saw. And as soon as I walked in there and watched it, I was like, "This is what I want to do forever, if I could." <laughs> well, and what? What? Tell me, what is it about comedy that is such a thrill and so addictive? It's actually. All a bit of a trick. <laughs> and I, what I love about it, most importantly, it's so portable. Just you and a mic. You know, I look at people in bands and they thank God I'm not in a band. You have to pack up either. But the art of stand-up, it's a very new art too. You know, it's only been in Australia for since the 80s really. Um, what is it? It's conquering it, I think. I think that's, you know, every single time you go on stage you learn more. Even now, I never come off stage and didn't learn something or try something. What a wonderful thing to do. Walk into a room, everyone be quiet and you do the talking. Well, and this is the thing, Fiona, because given this this podcast is about confidence, for most people, stand-up comedy is something that is just a bridge too far. You know, standing up on stage, potentially telling a joke that bombs and no one laughing. Were you ever, did you have to overcome that in order to put yourself out there? Yeah, and you have to go through that baptism of fire, unfortunately. Um, I don't trust a stand-up who says they've never died. You know, that's what we call it, dying. (laughs) (laughs) And they come with so much fruit for telling stories after they've happened, you know, but, oh, my God, excruciating at the time. And my first death was in Cairns. It was a corporate event. And, oh, my God, I was so bad and so out of my depth. I was only in my 20s and far too inexperienced for this. It was a mineral company, about 400 people there and in Cairns. And my performance was going, and corporates are terrible because you basically only desert, you know, they're not there because they like your comedy. But And they're very hard to shush them up, particularly if you don't have a profile. And I had no profile at all. <laughs> I was about oh, 10 minutes in and the CEO's wife of the company, but it's not like they booed me and said, get off. That would have been a privilege. What It was worse than that. It was, <laughs> it's like deathly silent. And... The CEO's wife of the company, she came up on the stage, she took the microphone out of my hand and she said, stop it, love. <gasps> no. Stop it, love. Go home. So how did you then, because for most of us, we would we would wake up the next morning and go, I am never doing that again. How did you, what did you tell yourself in order to keep going? Well, unfortunately, and I do remember this, I didn't tell myself anything. I went back to the hotel and I drank the mini bar dry. Um, and... <laughs> That was before I had an alcohol problem, but by hell, I had one that night. <laughs> the story gets so much worse because I remember it was that weekend I got home from Cairns, just like broken with embarrassment and then obviously a raging hangover. And my husband said, you've got to ring your gynecologist. I've been trying to get hold of you all weekend. I rang him to find out that that pregnancy test on Friday was positive. That was just one of the worst weeks of my life. Oh, no, and then you just had that big bender and yeah. you were pregnant. Oh, God. One of my most famous jokes, and it's so funny how jokes can be so 
offensive and or funny if depending on which way you think you know you take it but there's this joke where I tell that whole story and I tag it with I rang my mother and I said don't knit sleeves and (laughs) (laughs) Fiona oh my goodness (laughs) and then that affords me to have a tag later on I said you know Nine months later, perfectly healthy baby girl. And I always say, we don't ask her to pass the salt, but she's fine. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. By the time I get to, we don't ask her to pass the salt, they laugh. But but so many people at that first joke, I, I remember doing it in the, in the United States, and it, they nearly exited the building. They were that horrified. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My, it's the women that are my mother's generation that really laugh at that joke. Wow. Okay. They don't take, you know, it's a different kind of, uh, a lot of my humour kind of comes from, in a weird way, my mother's generation. In a, there was this dark humour to these burdened Catholic women. <laughs> <laughs> I also think, and I wonder if you would agree with this, we've become so much more politically correct as the generations have gone by. Have you have you found that as a, that a challenge, you know, being in comedy now, you know, for for a little while that things have changed and you've had to kind of sanitize the the jokes that used to really work, they don't work so well now. Um no, I've never had to change anything except no, actually one yeah, and I was um taken to task for it and I thought, well, that's a fair call. I didn't know it was offensive, but I was talking with one of my kids um, got 97.9, no, 99.7 out of her for a final year. Wow. And I joked, well, yeah, we had to take a doctor and get a DNA test. I was so excited. I thought she might be Asian. Anyway. <laughs> God, that's so good. There's a guy in the audience, he bailed me up and he said, I found that very distasteful. I've got an adopted Asian daughter and it's a stereotype and I didn't appreciate it. And I was like, oh, goodness. And then I thought, you know what? It doesn't hurt me to not say it. (laughs) I don't really get up in arms about things. I think it's not so much political correctness. It's the keyboard warriors that jump, Mm. jump to crucify people. I've been very lucky. Um, I mean, I got, a, I might actually do, tell you the story. I've always felt like getting it off my chest. Oh, please. Because I came under this terrible fire, which wasn't even from the viewers. It was um, Spicks and Specks when I made my opinions clear on the Irwin family. I just think it's very odd the way they don't have contact with their grandfather, you know, um, not, not that it's any of my business, but... Um, I said something inappropriate. And the funniest thing was, though, that um, I, I used to leave my life behind me and go back to Alice Springs, and it was there were two very distinct worlds. And I'd recorded this Fix and Specs episode, and I'm in the bath in Alice Springs, and one of the kids is banging on the door at breakfast time. He says, Mum, did you say something bad about Bindi Irwin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I might have. I don't know why. Because Koshy's talking. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> that distance really did afford me kind of, you know, it didn't ruin my. But the other thing was it was so nonsensical because 
those shows, and this is what does piss me off, those shows, those panel shows, they, you know, I'm in it, I'm a um, freelance humorist, you know, you get booked on those shows and you get told, speak up, speak off and don't censor yourself. It's all sorted in the editing. So it really wasn't my call what goes to air, you know? Mm, yeah, that's how it works. And that's how it works. You kind of enc- you're kind of encouraged to talk over the top of each other and, and go bigger and yeah. better than the other person, yeah. It's awkward. Now, I watch those episodes of Spicks and Specks and I know the ones that I'm particularly drunk on and it's just excruciating. <laughs> Please stop <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a bit about that, about there was a time where you only ever, you had a little routine before you went on stage of, was it two or three little mini bottles two, of vodka? I can't remember. Two little mini bottles and they make up three standard drinks. So you always do that no matter where you went. Looking back now, I mean, I know that you've you've since performed sober many, many times, and you you write about this in the book about the first time you do that, and it's just exhilarating. Oh, but when you were doing that, did you believe that it made you better? Did you believe that it made you kind of Fiona two point Yeah, it was crazy how much I believed it, and that's frightening. That your truth is such a lie, mm. and. It's crazy how much power those two little bottles had over me in my whole, you know, in all of my life. I That was this dark, dark shadow in my mind and I carried it everywhere. Did you believe that you couldn't do it without it or that you were just better with it? I believed I couldn't do it without it. I absolutely believe now that, that was this disease is so cunning and baffling it's it's almost like it's a step ahead of you <laughs> because those nerves because I was so terrified of going on stage too and how can that be like now I don't I mean I feel a nice bit of energy you know you certainly don't feel like having a nap before you go on but to be that distorted in your thinking for so long is troubling (laughs) if nothing else You're listening to Claiming Your Confidence with comedian Fiona O'Loughlin and me, Katrina Blowers. Stick around, Fiona is about to share how she's found purpose in sobriety and the double standards she experienced as a woman going public with her alcoholism. It also, one of the, you know, just to go down a, a rabbit hole here for a sec, it, it is made me just so curious why it is that the thing that we are obviously so called to do, which for you, your calling so clearly is entertainment and comedy, is often also the thing that makes us the most terrified. Yeah. It's it's kind of unfair, isn't it? It is. And I went through a, I guess it was a another um, layer that made it hard and that was that my loved ones you know, not my kids, but my brothers and sisters and most of the people in my life didn't talk about my career at all. It was a no-go zone. Why was that? I think because they linked it inextricably from my alcoholism, but 
that that's as lonely as all get out when you can't talk about your work, you know. When the room goes quiet, it was a real head fuck. <laughs> yeah, and and also when you know that that work that you're doing is bringing so many other people in the world joy. Yeah. I remember when I got out of rehab and I was um, in my new apartment in Melbourne. It was such a beautiful apartment. It was so cheap, 400 bucks for a city view and iron bay windows. Oh, my God, it was heaven. Anyway, my brother was on the phone to me. I'd only been out of rehab about six weeks. And he said, so you've got a new apartment? And I said, yeah. And he said, how are you affording that? I said, well, I'm back at work. Doing what? Hmm. And I was like, oh, God, wow. I think that was the hardest, and I couldn't really write about it. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, I, c- I can only imagine. There were so many times in your book, Fiona, where I'm like, how on earth is this woman still alive? <laughs> you, you're in a coma, you're in a psych ward, you're at rehab, you're living in a drug den with a kooky healer who's prescribing you meth, yeah, you yeah. collapse on stage, you have huge tax bills, you have a codeine dependency, and then you are drinking hand sanitizer on the set of I'm a Celebrity, <laughs> Get Me Out of Here, which incidentally you want. Um, how are you the bionic woman? What is going on? I do feel that I have been protected, and I don't that's a bit hopeless, hopeless. I don't know why, but I'm very grateful that I've been protected. And maybe you know, I, I'm, I'm so up in the air what I believe in, what I don't, but I do, um, I do believe, believe in, in purpose. And I've never found so much purpose as I've had since I wrote this book, you know, because you've got to know your stuff. And this is the first time truly I believe I know what I'm talking about. Mm. Isn't that yeah. where you and That's the beauty of ageing, you know, when you get hindsight and insight, my God, that's worth every wrinkle you're ever going to get. I love that you said that I think you initially read something by Wayne Dyer and that kind of set you off on a new path where, yeah. What what really resonated about that for you and about I guess now you, you wake up and you ask yourself how you can be of service to others? Well, the problem was before that I never understood really how important it is to check your thoughts, you know, um, I'd say to myself over and over again, we all do it. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. You're such an idiot. You know, all these things are dangerous things. (laughs) Your mind doesn't have a sense of humour. You've got to really, it's so simple. Everyone seems to be reading from the same hymn book too. It's like a new movement. I I listen to Abraham Hicks, Wayne Dyer, um, Russell Brand. There's all this, this, this kind of movement and it's less of self and more of us. And that our purpose is none other than to be here for each other, you know. Do you think your comedy has changed a bit since then? Yeah, it has. It's so much more assured. (laughs) That's so good. And I don't know, you get unmoved so much more on stage now. For years I just stood still. Um, Yeah, everything's getting easier work-wise. 
How fabulous. Isn't that great to be 57 and everything's getting easier work-wise? It's so good. And I love the the lockdown comedy that you've been putting out there on your, your social media platforms, which... Oh, thanks, Katrina. Yeah, well, and it's kind of given you an opportunity to do something a bit different that perhaps you may not have done if you hadn't been able to perform at live gigs. It really has. It actually came... Uh, I started it before lockdown. I started in November. Uh, just, I don't know why. I thought the future's got to be online, surely. And my manager, Sue's always said as much. Um, so as soon as lockdown happened, I kind of had this feeling that this new beginning, oh, I didn't even know I'd write a book and get that out there because um, I'd done no more on the book than I had when I was at Mum and Dad's all those years ago. So it's been a really creative and productive year. Um, and I think it's been a weird and wonderful year, a terribly, terribly tragic year for so many people. And yet this weird moment of everyone almost taking a little bit of stock and seems like the people that haven't been affected have had the smarts to make it worth their while you know what an opportunity people had for the world to stop haven't we always said that yeah yeah we've all been wishing it and you have to be careful what you wish for in some ways don't you you know it's such a stark difference for people you know look at what's happening in america and it's breathtakingly sad yeah. I want to talk to you a bit about um, something you mentioned in the book about the double standards of women coming forward and, and going public with alcoholism as opposed to men. And you, you mentioned people like Darren Hinch. Uh, and the deafening silence after you won I'm a Celebrity. Another comedian had told you that your career would absolutely blow up if you won. And you described the heartbreak of waiting for the phone to ring and it never did. Have you made peace with that? Yes, I have. Um, in a way, I I think I was never really designed to belong, you know, to be owned by a network. Mm. You know, it makes it, I don't know that that was the right thing to wish for anyway. I mean, I'd love to create my own reality show, um, but I'd create it myself, you know. What about the, I suppose, the going back to the double standard stuff? Um, oh, yeah, I love it. Where do you, how, do you, how do you process that? And um, you would have done so much press around the release of your book. Have you been able to um, change the conversation in a way that, that's kind of made you feel like we're making progress on that front? Not much, but... There's lots to do, you know, and I reckon I'm just the girl to do it because. <laughs> yes, I would agree with that. Because now that, you know, I'm, uh, when I started the book, I was only four months sober, you know. I'm, I'm a year and three, three days and I know that's a baby in the woods, but to me it feels like 20 years or 15 years. It feels like the battle has been won for me. Um that's a scary thing to say for any addict, but um, now that I look with this hindsight and insight combined, I'm furious. Um, what are we doing? Every family just about has an addict in it, you know, and I'm even experiencing it now, um, and it's scary to say so, but it is the case that 
loved ones of addicts can't seem to resist still living inside the drama of the behaviours of the addict under the influence when that was happening. Mm. It's like shut up, let it go. You know, alcoholics will kill ourselves with shame. You know, if I were to die in that coma, I, I would have died of shame. That's what we're dying of. And I don't know why, like, I've, I've got a girlfriend who's as desperate as I was, I guess, by the time, although she has a home, but she's desperate to get sober. Where does she go, you know? Like, people don't realise how very sick an alcoholic is. You know, I was physically really, really unwell and I was still running my own life. Like, there's got to be a time and a, a place where someone can say to someone like me you are relieved of your duties we're here you know and addicts need stuff and I don't know why families and communities can't provide more we're always saying oh it's the system it's the government there's so much we can do you know I've got this plan for a well it's kind of like I've been living it myself for a year I put myself back into a home rehab last November so there's simple things still that I do that I would never um, I don't, you know, I don't carry cash on me. I don't have much more on a card that I have on me. You know, I, I've, I've handed over a lot to, um, well, what? How am I explaining this? I, I'm calling the shots, but I have to protect myself from this society that will not protect me. Ten percent of all drinkers. It will be ruinous too. 10% of everyone who ever tries alcohol, 10% of them will go down with this disease. So therefore the 90% that can drink with impunity, I think they're the ones that, the ones that are heavy drinkers are the ones that are fiercely anti-alcoholism. They don't want to hear about it. And people like me make them really pissed off. Yeah. But we've got to be more accountable for ourselves and each other. Because what an addict, like what I would have needed at that point if someone had said to me, and this is what I'm trying to get from my friend, but it's not happening as quickly as I'd like, is I would have, I want to offer someone, and I'm going to start my own private, it's not official rehab, but I'm going to have two friends hopefully come with me. I'm going to put cameras on it and live with me and do what I did for the first year. Because I think I understand what the gap is, you know. You've got to not just be, it's not just the alcoholic gives up the booze. They need support and lots of it. Like there's so many details to life and an alcoholic at that that moment in time just doesn't have the resources physically, mentally, emotionally, we're fucked. It's funny you you mentioned the statistics there and, and, you know, 10% of all drinkers, which I guess statistically is a small proportion. However, I would say that 10%, if you look at the entire population and most of the population would drink, that is a hell of a lot of people. What do you think, what do you think we should do as a society? We've got to be really open, really honest about what alcohol is. I'd love to get in schools and talk to Year 12s or Year 11s and tell them that this 
this particular substance, which is legal, it still is a drug. Uh, you'll find yourself, if you want to me, I'll, I'll tell them all the signs. You know, you, you can see it as clear as day that someone has the inverse allergy. Well, don't kids, we don't even know. Man on the street doesn't even know what the inverse allergy is, you know. It's where you once you've got it in your system, you'll cut glass. You'll break glass to get more. You know, it's this. It's it's powerful, very very powerful. That urge to get more, um, and it's out of out of your control in the end. Um, but why don't kids know this? That if you're finding yourself the last to leave the party all the time, every time you drink, there's trouble. Have you ever drunk and there not be trouble? Like show them for God's sake. Because I hate I hate this notion that everybody has to hit rock bottom. Why? Yeah. Rock bottom's awful. It's frightening, and it shouldn't have to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I went there four times. Well, and you you mentioned a little while back. You you said the word shame, and one of the very poignant parts of the book is where you talked about the first time you were quite open about your alcoholism and you went to a gallery opening you were with Chris you your husband you were surrounded by free-flowing alcohol and people who knew you were a drunk and you said it felt like taking an enormous leap over a chasm filled with snapping crocodiles speaking your truth had trapped you in a deep well of shame what I would love to know is how did you overcome that shame of of not only feeling that way, but also of the moments where you did collapse on stage. How did you, how do you go back out into the world holding your head high and going, you know what, I'm not going to let this define me? Um, you never really get over it. <laughs> That's a good thing. You need to have a bit of a memory there. But how do you, well, it's the ability really, and I've been able to do this for the majority of my life. Um, good girlfriend, Jasmine Afianos, she was my best friend at boarding school. We're still great mates. She always, and I really agree with it, to levitate yourself above the world, you know, and just go, like, well, at the, at the end of the day, you know, so if I'm ever in that state, I'm like, look, okay, that happened, I did that. I'm just this person on this planet allergic to that substance. I'm an alcoholic. It's not going to, you know. Do you just get a bigger picture? Because at the end of the day, what other people? Fantastic. Yeah, I've always been able to do that. And also what, and I've always told my kids this, other people's thoughts literally can't touch you. You know, it's it's an intangible thing to fear. It's it's too for saga. So good. People don't think about you that much anyway at the end of the day. And what they do is none of your business. (laughs) I love it. Now, I would love to know, we've come to the end of our chat together. I don't want to be at the end of our chat. I like chatting with you. I know, but we're not finished yet because I've still got four more questions to ask you. And the first one would be, what would be your number one confidence tip? Oh, wow. What would be my number one confidence tip? I guess for someone who has been through something in their life and they're they're rebuilding and wanting to redefine who they are and put themselves out into the world again and follow their purpose, what would you say? That you're a long time dead. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah. 
do it, do it, grab it with both hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think too there's still always, as long as you are alive, there's still always time. I mean, you did talk in your book quite a bit about the impact that your illness had on your kids, but you also speak with such love about the amazing relationship that you have with them and how early on all of those fun, magical times that you created in your home really set them up for the rest of their lives. So I think you are a long time dead and while you're alive, there's still always time to make things right. Oh, that's beautiful, Katrina, and it's so true, yeah. And, you know, when you do feel that you've you've buggered up, it may not be alcoholism, whatever it is, just know that the hours turn into days, the days turn into weeks, the weeks turn into months. Before you know it, you are behind your... It will be behind you. This this too shall pass. <laughs> Everything yeah. passes. Yeah, yeah. I think that that comes with the advantage of uh, of age and wisdom. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be some benefit to it. Now, uh, you did talk about Wayne Dyer. I'd love to know if there's a book that you've read that's really helped you on your way in your confidence journey. I, I don't stop reading, and they're mostly from women. Um, women's books. What's that one by the bed? I'm really enjoying Untamed at the moment. Oh, Glennon Doyle. Yeah, Glennon Doyle. Yeah, that's a good one. Absolutely loving it. This, um, I think now's the time. Now's the time to be a brave woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when I think of brave women, I certainly think of you, Fiona. You are a, as brave as it gets. Um, what do you do for pure joy, something that has no outcome or goal attached to it? A bath. I love a bath. I, I, oh. I can have up to three baths a day. It's disgusting. <laughs> wow. You do love a bath. Yeah. When, the, when I had little kids, it was the only place where they knew if she's in the bath, she can't be got. And, it's, you know, I could have 10-minute baths, but hell, I love them. It's like an instant meditation. Are you someone who eats in the bath? I have been known to eat in the bath. <laughs> I've got a girlfriend who takes her dinner into the bath, which I've always thought, you know, it's a little peculiar. And I would love to know what's next for you. What are you working on right now in your confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in your life? Well, right now I'm working on, Katrina, I haven't even told anyone this, but you know these people on um, the Russell Brands, the people you stumble across them on YouTube all the time. I thought, why can't I have my own? I'm going to give. I'm going to give out some sort of. Um, well, a lot of sketches and fun and interviews as well. So a lot happening on my YouTube. But I also want to have a crack at um, you know mini monologues of how to change. Oh my gosh, that will be fabulous and I really do believe that if you look at things as having you know a meaning or a reason the reason you have survived that list of things that I read out to you before and the reason you are such a born storyteller and make people laugh is to put a different perspective on this stuff and to make people listen in a way that they haven't before so I honestly believe you were born to do that. Oh, thanks so much, darling. And it's not just about alcohol. There's so many things I want to talk about, you know. 
Um, there's things we don't even see. Or, or, one that I've been interested in this week is the pain of the um, of the childless women who, through no fault of their own, just didn't it didn't happen for them. Motherhood. Uh, my sister's going through it at the moment. She's 43. It's the most agonising time in a woman's life, and we've got to be more uh, mindful of it. Hmm. Having those conversations, I suppose that. Well, you don't who could be heartbroken in the backyard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because IVF couples get a lot of support, um, and IVF must be so traumatizing, I can't imagine. But, wow, the childless woman, not by choice, it's a big, painful thing. And when I spent a day pretending I was one of them to note how many times you get a sucker punch, it's not easy. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, Fiona, you have such a big heart and I'm so grateful to chat with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. We've laughed at some really wrong things. but (laughs) I've enjoyed this podcast more than any other one I've done. I love you. Oh, my gosh. And I cannot wait to see what is next for you. And I almost feel like you're... The best is still to come for you. I really do. Thanks, Katrina. I've been thinking that too because still got to get a house. Yeah. Watch this space. <laughs> Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Term 6 Podcast Productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.